again, and welcome back to Defender's Dialogue. This is episode seven. Make way for Magneto and his merry mutants. Because if you can't come up with something funny, at least go for the alliteration. I like alliteration. Yeah. I'm Adam Phillips, president of UntoldStoriesMarketing.com. And I am Car D'Angelo, owner of Earth 2 Comics, comic shops in Sherman Oaks and Northridge, California. Today, we're going to talk about Giant Size Defenders number one and regular Defenders 15 and 16. Normal Size Defenders. Normal Size Defenders. Before we get started, I wanted to mention a couple of things I wanted to correct. And I've been meaning to do one of these for a couple of weeks. I keep forgetting to bring it up. We had mentioned a while back, does Enchantress have a name? And she does. It is Amora. And I think she got that name during the Walter Simonson run on Thor, just like Executioner got the name Scourge around that time, too. Doesn't get used a lot, but it is a name. So you're saying that that the Enchantress and the Executioner were not their given names, but simply more descriptors, and they have these other birth names, one might say, family yes. names, but they only came to light much, much later. That is what we are saying. Okay. Much like, did I ever mention, one of my favorite ridiculous moments in the movie Mad Max Fury Road was when they finally find all the old ladies and one of them says, oh, that's our Furiosa. And I think, oh, you named her that at birth. <laughs> wow. Uh, Furiosa, she's always had that chip on her shoulder. We don't know why. <laughs> yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway, not to take anything away from that fantastic movie. It is a great movie. The other correction uh, I wanted to make was, and I realized it later, but in the last episode... We were talking about Justice League of America and Carr. You mentioned Gary Friedrich, and I realized later, oh, you meant Mike Friedrich. I did. Yes. I just want to get it out there because otherwise somebody's going to go, hey. And the heroes were the heroes of Angor. Right. The ones that were the Marvel, the DC versions of the Marvel characters with yes. Blue Jay substituting for Yellow Jacket and I think Silver Sorceress for Scarlet Witch. Yeah, I looked it up more later, but yeah. Oh yeah, Mike Friedrich. Mike Friedrich was primarily a, a DC writer. Cool, cool, cool. How do you spell that? Ang. What is it? Angor. A n g o r r. Hmm. I wonder if there was some. I wonder if there was some view from DC that all oh, the Marvel heroes are always angry. That could be it. Or champions of Angor. One R. Ah. And they've also been called the Justifiers, the Assemblers, and the Meta Militia. I mean, this is what Google's telling me. Okay. Yeah, there was a Thor knockoff called Wangina. He was like a god, <laughs> a strong god from a, from a different um, thing. Jack B. Quick was the uh, sort of Quicksilver knockoff. Um, but, of course, Justice League also has a, has a, a speedster, a uh, well-known speedster. Mm -hmm. uh, but Silver Sorceress, yeah, it was like Scarlet Witch. It was it was only four characters, and honestly, you may not have even. I mean, I, I think when I read that issue as a as a kid or in a reprint or something, I didn't even catch that until it was like explained to me years later. But I think other people like Grant Morrison have have used them or revived them. I wouldn't be surprised if Kurt Busiek uh, did. But the they've become more Avengers like as time has gone on. Similarly, in the way. 
Squadron Supreme slash Sinister has become more Justice League-like and expanded their membership as time went on. Cool. I could talk about analog heroes all day long. <laughs> That's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So if we're ready, let's get started. But I think before we get into Giant Size Defenders number one, we want to talk a little about the Giant Size program at Marvel in 1974, because I still would like to know why Marvel decided to do this. It's so strange to put out all these Giant Size issues quarterly with long stories, but sometimes they were just reprints. It just seemed like a lot of extra work, <laughs> you know. Well, I think the plan changed, and I think some of it was was budget, but wasn't wasn't what was going on at the time, the whole kind of newsstand wars of the early 70s before you know, the collectible market and the and certainly the direct market came to be that comics were getting were, were fighting for their life because at 20 cents right or you know fi- you know 15 to 20 cents wasn't enough to to fight with you know TV guide and time and newsweek and things that had more value so they were always so it was the time that we start getting into that experimentation whether it's DC's super spectaculars later the treasury editions all these things are a way to try and get on the newsstands with things that would st- stay there longer by being quarterly and and have that higher price point. That's a really good point. And actually, you're absolutely right. I mean, when I was looking through the Justice League issues earlier to sort of see what Len Wein had written, you know, it occurred to me that, yeah, every, I don't know, five or six issues, there would be a 100-page super spectacular for 60 right. cents. So they were always looking for a way to get a bigger package on the newsstands, often with less work because they're reprints. But Marvel mixed it up where there would be, you know, some of the giant sizes were reprints and those were always disappointing to me when I got them. The giant size like Defenders, Avengers, Fantastic Four, Spider-Man, I don't know, a couple of others were all new material and they were amazing. Yeah. And I think they make a mention here that in the, in the letters column or not, and it's, or an editorial, I think that Roy Thomas writes about it. It sounds like something went awry. It sounds like, you know, and again, you know, dreaded deadline doom was really creeping in on Marvel at this point, especially with these double issues and things. So I do suspect that maybe it was supposed to be an original story. And the schedule just got out of hand, you know, especially even with Defenders losing a month, even its regular issue, mm. you know, being delayed a month. You know, it's, you know, maybe the Squadron Sinister was supposed to be a single issue of a, of a of double size, you know, because it was it's a very neat self-contained two-parter or just whatever was meant to. I mean, I remember I started reading Marvel Comics a few years later and a lot of the stories that I started with. Mm-hmm. In Avengers and in Fantastic Four were all those kind of two parters, and they were all scheduled for the quarterly giants, but they got split into being regular issues. Ah, huh. that's interesting. Uh, like in Fantastic Four, the first, the Crusader, uh, Marvel Boy, when Marvel Boy comes back. Ah, well, my suspicion with this one is that they realized very late in the game that they had this book on the schedule. <laughs> 
and suddenly had to put something together quickly. Then that's and, possible too, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it happens. This issue is cover dated July. It went on sale April 23rd, a week after Defenders 14. It is a 50 cent cover price. Um, the cover is sort of a classic Defenders as drawn by Gil Kane and Frank Giacoya bursting out of a background that's made up of panels from other issues. But there's also a Silver Surfer in there drawn in by Johnny Ramita. You know, you can tell it's completely different. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And then um, the story is by Tony Isabella with Jim Starlin and Al Milgram doing the artwork. And it's really just, like you said, a framing sequence for a bunch of reprints. So we'll go through this pretty quickly, starting with the splash page, which is basically the same as the cover, only drawn by Jim Starlin this time. You know, the three the three main defenders, Hulk, Submariner, and Doctor Strange, bursting out of a background made up of a whole bunch of other panels. And again, and the emphasis on, 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 uh, on Namor also... Well, obviously, they don't have Valkyrie reprints or Nighthawk reprints. Yes. But it does, it does kind of show that this was kind of conceived before they were writing Namor out of the series. Yeah, I was just going to say that. And he's not in his his suit yet. You know, he's still in. So I think the thing was maybe it started earlier than I think. And then they just pushed it off. I don't know. Because I also thought, I, I looked it up, and this issue came out at the same time as Captain Marvel 33, which is the last second to last Jim Starlin issue. Hmm. But this looks a little earlier in his drawing style. So Yeah, yeah I, I agree. This this yeah. Just a little. Anyway, uh as we get started, Hulk, Valkyrie, and Doctor Strange are walking down the streets of New York, although we basically start with a homeless guy who's drunk, suddenly looks up and there's these three heroes and he thinks, uh, I'll never drink again then runs away, and the three of them are just sort of talking about how shouldn't we help him? No, it's okay. We don't want to stop him from giving up alcohol. And Hulk says, it's okay. My friend, You're my friends, and everybody's going to be happy. And there's not much to it. They're just sort of chatting about like what they've been up to lately. Oh, and you know what it says here, that this story takes place before the events of Defenders 13, which is why they put it there in the omnibus, even though it came out after issue 14 in real life. Oh, that answers that great mystery. There you go. Yeah, they're doing it more by where the story falls and not when the release date was. So we're back in Doctor Strange's townhouse, and Clea and Valkyrie are sort of talking while Hulk and Doctor Strange kind of walk away with Wong to get some food. And Clea and Alhakari are drawn kind of provocatively throughout this story, much more so than you would get in a Sabi Sama comic. And they're sort of talking about Valkyrie is sort of saying how I wish I knew more about these defenders, and Clea says, I can help you with that. <laughs> so she uses a, a spell to show Valkyrie what the Hulk was like way back in the day when he was just beginning to learn the meaning of loneliness, as it says here. We go straight into a reprint of half of The Incredible Hulk number three by Stanley, Jack Kirby, and Dick Ayers. Right. And this is the point where the Hulk, yeah, the original six issues of the Hulk, as probably everybody knows, but were kind of all over the place. Like every issue, it seemed to be a slightly different version of what triggers the Hulk's 
transformations. Yeah, and were they like designed for, because they were all, it's sort of like how Spider-Man started out too. They were all like half, you know, it was two stories an issue or whatever. And I always wondered were they meant for a, not for a, a self-titled book, but for like another book. You know, it's possible, but I don't think anyone's really been able to ever explain that fully. But I agree with you that it sure feels that way. So this is the point where Hulk becomes Hulk at night. And his only friend, Rick Jones, is the only one who can kind of contain him. And, you know, they have to keep the Hulk in a cave sort of behind a giant safe door. And, of course, the Hulk smashes through it anyway. But for some reason, they thought this will stop him. And I never quite understood. There's a giant pylon in the door that is supposed to somehow stop him. But there's there's never any indication as to what that is or how it works. <laughs> It's just sort of there. Well, you don't see what it's attached to because it would need to be attached to another right. thing that's holding it in place. Right. So in this story, the army tricks the Hulk into getting into a space capsule. He gets rocketed into outer space. He gets zapped by some cosmic rays, although they don't call them that. And then he comes back to Earth and he sees Rick Jones and thinks he's been. this is all his fault that this happened to him and Rick Jones at some point, you know, the Hulk's about to, about to actually hit him and Rick says, no, no. And then he realizes that somehow the cosmic rays have put the Hulk in his power so that if he says, Hulk, stand up, sit down, make a funny face, the Hulk will do it. Right. But this is an enormous responsibility because if Rick Jones goes to sleep, the Hulk immediately is out of his control. And how is he ever going to live like this? And that's kind of the end of the story that they reprint here, at least. Yeah, and the rest of that issue, then there's like three pages. And this is why it feels like kind of jerry-rigged, because there's like a three or four-page recap of the origin of the Hulk. And, <laughs> and then there's the Ringmaster story. Oh, yeah, that's right. So it's kind of like, I mean, they're connected in a serialized way, but it almost feels like, taking these two stories, they needed to do the origin again to kind of connect it together. Although in the early days of the Marvel comics, if you, especially if you read fantastic four, they thought nobody was reading them. So mm. every issue they repeat everything that's come before, like, which is not unusual. Yeah. I guess Julie Schwartz used to say that every comic is somebody's first comic. So, you know, you want to you, you want to make sure that the reader can come up to speed pretty fast. Right. Anyway, then we cut back to Clea and Valkyrie and Valkyrie's going like, yeesh, I didn't know how bad the Hulk's life is was at that time. And nobody has a word to say about Rick Jones, <laughs> this poor kid. Meanwhile, we cut to on that same page, the Hulk is eating a giant turkey leg and Wong says, hey. <laughs> The Hulk's vanishing. What's happening? And then we go back to Clea and Valkyrie, and Clea's getting a sense of something weird is going on. Oh, well, I must be imagining things. Now let's go back to the days when Prince Namor was young. And this story, it's only a couple of pages, but it's amazing. <laughs> because it's basically very young Submariner. This is a 1940s, early 40s story, written and drawn by Bill Everett. And it's like the early days of World War II and Prince Namor is very young, doesn't know what 
guns and bullets are or airplanes or anything and is flying around. Basically, bombs are going off around him and people are shooting at him and, you know, he smashes his head right into an airplane and it's just like going, what are all these weird things? And then um, the plane that he was sort of flying around with crashes into the ocean and explodes and he opens his eyes to see his mother and he sees the sunken tail of the plane with the big swastika on it and says, what is that? So that, my boy, she says, is a symbol of your heroism because, you know, you, you destroyed that plane and stopped these bad people from hurting others. He punched Nazis without even knowing it. Yes, he didn't even know why he should, but he did. He did it anyway. I don't know. There's something so energetic and crazy about these four pages that I, I just find them fantastic. Do you think they were redrawn in any way? Because I'm also looking in the, I have a copy of the original giant size comic and I know Bill Everett, you know, he, we know because he was doing some work on Defenders was still uh-huh. available to Marvel. Uh-huh. Um, but it really is just kind of, it's really clean for 1940 stuff, but it's also kind of weird because they're saying like he's only a seventeen-year-old kid. I mean, in Atlantean years, whatever. But he's all—it's—it's it's the Nazis. I mean, it's—I mean, this is the prime of of Namor's career. At first, I thought we were reading like a Lil Namor Namor story, you know, L I apostrophe. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then it's obviously World War Two, which was sort of his heyday. So right. it's just he's having this kind of like naive moment. Uh, yeah. I mean, this is. I didn't know it was a plane. I thought it was a bird. Yeah, it's very odd. I'm actually looking right now on comics.org. This is reprinted from... Oh, this is interesting. This is reprinted from Submariner number 41 from August 1955. So it's not a Golden Age story. It's a 1950s story that harkens back to the uh, 40s, which makes sense because Everett... Like, if you look at the early 40s stuff by Everett, it's not this polished. Right. And he was doing a lot of work for Marvel in the 50s, like a ton. So this is more, the this is post-war, so it's kind of a reboot in the sense of it's saying we're doing Namor stories, but this is kind of a flashback to the 40s when yeah. he wasn't running around New York terrorizing people. Yes, exactly. So I guess that makes a little more sense. That's interesting. That's like all well, like young allies, the uh, or or um, young you know boys comic, all those comics that they came out with with it when they revived you know Human Torch and Captain America and mm-hmm. Mariner, and they kind of treated them like new series, like the guy who wasn't oh. you know school teacher Steve Rogers as Captain America and all yep. that. Young Men, wasn't it? Young Men, Young Men Twenty Four. There you go. Uh, so that's only a four-page Namor story, and then we cut back to uh, what's going on currently in. Doctor Strange's place, Valkyrie is saying how, you know, I'm beginning to understand who these people are and how tough things have been for them. We see Doctor Strange is saying something is going wrong here. Oh, I know. Clea is casting a spell from the Book of Vishanti, and he goes, starting to run toward her, but it's too late. He disappears because she's now telling a story from his earlier days as well. And this is only one page, but that is such a Tony Stark-looking Doctor Strange at the bottom of the page, isn't it? 
Oh, interesting. Yes. Yeah, I mean, not that they look so different to start with, but I think it's just because his hair, his face is a little more square than Jim Starlin often draws it, and also there's no indication that he has the you know the white hair on the right sides of his hair or whatever. And then they go into a Doctor Strange story from Strange Tales number 145, scripted by Denny O'Neill and drawn and probably plotted by Steve Ditko about a character called Mr. Rasputin. And I'm not even going to get into this too much because it's just a convoluted story that's in the middle of a much longer story, I believe. Yeah, and, I, and also the, and the Denny O'Neill thing surprised me. I mean, what I didn't realize that anybody besides... Stanley had scripting credits on Ditko work. Oh no, no, no! Danny wrote some. Roy Thomas wrote some. Stan has said things. Had said things like Doctor Strange is all Steve Ditko, and he I don't think was even super comfortable uh, trying to write it because it was like Ditko's plot that to him didn't make a lot of sense. Interesting. Yeah, this this guy, Mister Rasputin is attacking Doctor Strange and in the middle of the mystic battle he pulls a gun and shoots Doctor Strange which I thought was an incredible move and Doctor Strange using the cloak of levitation kind of floats into a hospital where he is tended to by a, a nurse and a doctor you know interestingly for probably what this is probably about 1965 or 66 the doctor is African American so good on you Steve Ditko right and Dr. Strange is recovering in the hospital, but he, um, you know, can't actually leave because he's lost too much blood. And Mr. S. Butin has hired a thug to make sure that Dr. Strange doesn't get out of the hospital alive. But Dr. Strange is able to use his cloak separately from himself to stop Mr. S. Butin. And, you know... It, uh, like I said, I don't really want to get too much into it because this yeah, I was going to say you're getting a lot into it for someone who's you didn't want to get a lot into it. It's a longer story <laughs> than the other ones, but by the time we get to the end of the story, we cut directly to where the defenders have disappeared to, which is some kind of a netherworld space where they're being attacked by you know the Hulk is breaking out of the place where he was held in the cave. And then Namor is uh, there, and he's fighting World War II planes, and Doctor Strange is facing sort of a uh, ghostly version of Mister Rasputin, and you know Doctor Strange is thinking like, of course, Clea unknowingly did this, and he's got to stop it now. And Hulk starts to have a little bit of a meltdown, and I love this. He says, "Hulk always wanted to be left alone, but not this alone." Right. <laughs> they sort of team up at, and Hulk and Submariner find each other and smash the planes that Submariner was fighting. Doctor Strange was is shot in a weird way by Rasputin and his ghostly form with a ghostly gun. Doctor Strange says we have to put our minds together and find our way back to our own dimension and we cut from the three of them together to Clea and Valkyrie, and Clea is having some kind of feedback that is kind of the ener their energies forcing their way through her head <laughs> back to Doctor Strange's place. 
and Doctor Strange is sort of explaining how yet again, I mean, that this is a recurring motif in Doctor Strange's own series as well, which is that the, um, you know, called the Sorcerer's Apprentice Syndrome, a little knowledge can be dangerous, and Clea seems to have done that several times as a plot device. But I do like that we get to a point with Clea and Valkyrie where some of the kind of mistrust and sort of cattiness, for lack of a better word, that we saw in other times when Valkyrie first showed up at the mansion, they're more friendly now. So it seems like that's... They are, although if you recall, that was pretty trumped up just by, like, captions that sort of said things that weren't really happening in the story. Right. So, you know, fortunately they didn't really follow through on that in the first place. Anyway, the story sort of ends with uh, Doctor Strange returning Submariner to where he had come from in Atlantis and Clea sort of chastising herself for being such a fool and Valkyrie going, you know, I've got a lot to think about with all these heroes who've been around a lot longer than I have. The other thing I wanted to say about this before we wrap up is that I mean, this is a pretty clever way to to wrap up a bunch of reprints. But uh, Submariner isn't in the story until they are all in that other dimension together. Like, we don't get to see him and what he's doing when he disappears. Oh, hey! It's, it's a little funny. Right. He didn't come back with them after the... Uh, well, he wasn't on the Zemnu adventure. Correct. There's a line in there that they are returning from. That's why it's between issues. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, it's obviously this wasn't really plotted with a specific they kind of shoehorned it in but yes that's interesting that he suddenly shows up and i loved how when he did show up in his other we, we forgot to talk about this when he did show up in his new costume and valkyrie asks him hey what about the new costume and he goes it's a really long story and i don't want to talk about it <laughs> oh, yeah, that was great you're right i forgot about that long and confusing and it was like the rare moment in Defenders where we don't go into a three-page flashback to explain something from another book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so just to wrap things up, there is a text page that sort of explains what giant size books are going to be. And I like the fact that this page also has an ad on it for Giant Size Avengers number one and the man monster called Nuclo and the fabled all-winners squad are all going to be in there. Pretty good comic, as I recall. Oh, Yes. Oh, and also they reprint the uh, pinup from Defenders number four, I think it is, or five, five probably. Right, because uh, you demanded Sam it. Yeah, <laughs> and then it's not reprinted in the omnibus, but this this issue also had that Silver Surfer story from the back of Fantastic Four Annual number five, which was the first solo Silver Surfer story where he meets Quasimodo. So they just stuck it in there because, of course, the Silver Surfer has been on the team. Yes, and even though he was now working at DC, they wanted to <laughs> stick it to uh, use Jack Kirby's work, but man, they didn't put him on any of the covers for all that time. Huh? All his reprint stuff when they reprinted. Oh, I see what you mean. In Marvel, like when they were reprinting Fantastic Four, the Galactus trilogy, and Marvel's Greatest Comics, John Buscema or John Romita were doing all. Um, Probably John Romita were doing new covers for all all that all those stories. And I don't think that was to stick it to Jack Kirby so much as to give it a fresh look. 
maybe. I mean, but John Romita had no problem using his old old covers on Marvel Tales. That's true. Marvel Tales was like art for you know. I mean, they would recolor or rebalance some things. Yeah. But but Marvel Tales were straight uh, straight up use the original cover. Well, I will tell you something else from. I mean, granted, it was like eight years later or ten years later when I was working at Marvel, but the um, film library was a mess. And I bet it was a mess in the 70s, too, (laughs) meaning that, you know, you'd get the film from a book and all the emulsifier or whatever it is was like peeling off the paper and such. So there was a lot of retouching to be done a lot of the time. I think with those covers, they had to redraw either because they couldn't find the original thing or it was or they wanted a fresh look or I don't know. I'm just saying I don't think anyone would make a conscious decision to say, screw you, Jack Kirby, at this point. Well, I think I don't. I'm sort of saying it more because he wouldn't have gotten a reprint fee anyway. He left for DC. We're not going to promote his style as our as our style. I'm looking yeah, at it in uh, a very that. broad way, um, but just something once I noticed once when I was like looking at a bunch of reprints and things from from that that era. Um, but you're right, and maybe yeah. Romita kept better track of his own files. You know, had stats on and, everything. Uh, you know, yeah, it's possible, I guess. Okay, moving on now. We're going to cover Defenders number 15. This starts with a cover by Sabi Sema and inked by Mike Esposito. Doctor Strange, Nighthawk, and the Hulk fighting Magneto, the Blob, and Eunice, the Untouchable. No Valkyrie on this cover yet again. Sad. But there's Submariner. Not in the book. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) For some reason, he must be under contract to have... uh, (laughs) Be in the corner yes. box, so to speak. He made a really good deal. Right. I have to talk about coloring again. I'm going to probably want to do the research on this, but Magneto is not looking red and purple like he does. He's really looking dark. Um, he's looking purple and brown. Yeah, it's kind of a maroon looking to me in the omnibus here. Yeah. But I, I see your point. Everybody else is like their true colors except for him. Yeah, it's just something darker about it. I don't know. But maybe, you know, again, it may just have, it may just be a family problem. Maybe, you know, maybe that's their mutant power. Is it the Scarlet Witch and Magneto get colored differently on covers? <laughs> the mutant side <laughs> oh effect of, of being a mutant. Right. Okay, so this issue is written by Len Wein, who's still on for a few more issues. Art by Sabi Sema and Klaus Janssen. And it's called Panic Beneath the Earth. And we open with Doctor Strange giving Valkyrie and Nighthawk the tour of his Sanctum Sanctorum. And Nighthawk's making jokes about, where's the pool table? Ha ha ha. And Doctor Strange takes everything too seriously. He's like, "Um, is that a joke? I don't get it. Valkyrie says, you're just sulking because nobody's really talking about your fancy new costume. It is fancy. And that gives him a chance to say, and that gives him a chance to say, it is a fancy new costume because look, I have a jet pack under my cape slash wings. So he doesn't have to use his Hawk plane anymore. And I didn't remember a Hawk plane, but I guess he had one. Yeah. It's also another kind of, you know, Batman joke. It's actually distinguishing Nighthawk a bit by giving him the flight power, which kind of, I think is one of the things that starts separating him from like a you know being a Batman knockoff and making him more a more of a hawk than than just you know the 
the guy with all the gadgets. Yes, that's a good argument, but they're about to blow it, um, which I'll come back to in one second. Oh, wait. Okay, that's true. Wait, before we get to that, can I ask one question, though? I, did, I tried finding out who designed this costume. Yeah, I, I was going to bring that up, too. It looks like it could be Ramita. You know, it's just, like, sleek and clean the way he designs things. It's not particularly great, in my opinion, but it's still better than the other one. It's got the heroic color scheme. You know, there's always that thing about comics is that yep. the, the heroes were in the primary red and blue. So Spider-Man, Superman, you get your red and blue. Villains are going to be in those off colors, the purples and the greens that require, you know, mixtures. So I think going with red, blue, and yellow or gold is it's probably supposed to really read more as, as, as golden. It was a good transition to say, hey, I'm a hero now. That makes sense, sure. But let me ask you, did you sometimes think that those weird wings that go under his eyes look like just, you know, bags under his eyes? <laughs> He's tired. Kyle Richmond is very, very tired. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's tough being a millionaire. Yeah. After he sort of explains about the jetpack and whatever, uh, Valkyrie says that, I'm glad it's, you're going to stick around, Nighthawk, because, again, I'm going to tell you, I'm leaving the Defenders. Nighthawk is a little surprised by this, you know, because he just joined the group, and now somebody's already leaving, and then Doctor Strange is like, well, I was hoping Valkyrie would have put aside that idea, but no, I guess not. And she sort of reiterates that, you know, she owes it to Barbara to find out who she was and whatever. And I just wish I had a place to leave my winged flying horse, Aragorn. And Nighthawk says, I can't help you with figuring out who Barbara was, but I can help you with this. And he makes a phone call to his second-in-command, I guess, at Richmond Enterprises or whatever the name of the company is, whose name is Pennysworth. Yes. And he says, hey, Pennysworth, I'd like you to buy me a writing academy with plenty of privacy so nobody will question a winged horse. Of course, you still have to have somebody there to actually take care of the horse and feed the horse, but, you know. You hire a blind man. Exactly. And also, I don't know why it has to be a riding academy. You can just have a stable, but, uh, you know. How I know this, I don't know, but Lynn just said a riding academy, and that's that. So he wraps up his call to Penny's worth, and... <laughs> Valkyrie and Nighthawk turn back and see that Doctor Strange is talking to nothing. There's nothing there. And Nighthawk thinks, you might be going crazy. And Doctor Strange said, no, all I have to do is shine the light of my amulet in the direction of where I was talking to. And the astral form of Professor X is revealed. This is a page that has a lot of you know, those Sal Buscema sort of Kirby throwbacks. We get a lot of Kirby dots, but we also great get Nighthawk using some great Herbie hand action there. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's it just, it just, again, I'm always still fascinated that every time those kind of uh, Kirby designs show up in these books. Mm, yeah. And there's also, I mean, Klaus Jansen inking is always great, but, you know, he is one of the rare inkers in this period who actually thinks about light sources and yeah. the coloring and things. So, you know, he make, makes it possible for the colorist to do more than just lay down a flat color. There's, like, highlights and things like that, especially in Nighthawk's costume here. 
so Professor X is explaining how normally I'd call on others, who obviously we know it's the X-Men, but there's a menace that cannot wait, so I need your help. Please join me as soon as you can at Carlsbad Caverns in New Mexico. <laughs> it's interesting. All the places that just the, the randomness of like it's Carlsbad Caverns. Yeah, right. <laughs> the tourists didn't notice, I guess. But you know what the secret mission that the X Men are on is? I all I remember is that they were. This is a weird period where the X Men were popping up in like Marvel Team Up and Captain America issues and things like that. But no, I don't remember what the specific mission was. This is was. very historic. I, I looked it up, and there was an issue of Marvel Team Up written by Len Ween right. that was a team up between Human Torch and Iceman from the X Men. They get into a fight, of course, because Johnny Storm thinks Iceman's a bad guy. They get into a fight. A car drives up with, like, (laughs) Xavier, Cyclops, and Marvel Girl. And they go, hey, Bobby, you need any help? And they're like, no, 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 I'm okay. He goes, well, we're going to go off on this special mission. You know, know, we'll we'll get back to you later, basically. You know, and, and Bobby says, oh, yeah, I want to finish up this, uh, this, this thing that Johnny Storm and I are figuring out. The secret mission is Krakoa. Oh. So this is actually, they're off, they're off on giant size X-Men number one at this point. Or that's obviously in the planning stages in Len, yes. writer, editor mind at this point. Wow. And come to think of it, they have to first go off, get captured by Krakoa. And then the other guys have to show up to rescue them. Right. So Charles is kind of here instead of, yeah, you know, I I haven't tracked it completely with with Giant Size X-Men number one. Just kind of hitting the point, the reason you're not seeing X-Men in any other books right now is Uh there's this other thing going on. And that will eventually, you know, uh, because this is 1974, I think, at this point. So we're on that uh, that verge of Giant Size X-Men coming out. Yeah, I think I remember that being 75, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Speaking of dates and things, I forgot to say, this is, of course, Defenders 15, cover dated September, and it went on sale uh, June 18th, 1974. Important because we're now back to a monthly schedule again. Hooray. Awesome. Yeah. I don't remember Dr. Strange and Professor X meeting before, do you? They seemed kind of chummy, and that was my question, too. I couldn't place a story. No. I don't know. You know, know maybe they just either. met on the astral plane somewhere the way these guys do. <laughs> <laughs> it's possible. Yeah, I don't I don't think I know of a previous meeting, but that's it doesn't really matter. Because it's the Marvel Universe. Somehow they know each other. Doctor Strange, Nighthawk and Doctor are getting ready to go. Doctor Strange uses uh, a psychic projection to summon the Hulk who's out for his usual walk through the woods and enjoying nature and Hulk doesn't really want to be disturbed from that, but when Dr. Strange says, we need your help, Hulk says, you need my help? I'm your friend. I will help you. You know, he's just really into it now. He likes this whole having friends thing. Hulk needs friends. Yeah. The other three defenders take off, and then the next page, they're, you know, landing in the Carlsbad Caverns area, I guess, and Hulk is right behind them, and Professor X is already there. The five of them enter the cave. Hulk's pushing Professor X's wheelchair, which is a great sight. And they are 
accosted by a large one-eyed monster because that's what happens when you enter a cave pretty much. There's a giant monster immediately. Very orange. And he's orange. <laughs> Hulk starts fighting him, doesn't ha- doesn't get anywhere. Nighthawk and Valkyrie got caught in his fists. Doctor Strange is blasting away at him and then Professor X says, "You're going about this all wrong, everybody. Let me concentrate upon the mad cyclops." And it sort of dissolves into nothingness because it was on all an illusion. Who could have made that illusion happen? We'll find out. And it's a cool effect when the Cyclops character is dissolved. Cooler than, you know, it has a right to be in a way. It's almost like a clay face melting type of effect. Yeah. Yeah. So then there's a blast of energy and suddenly... The five of them are transported semi-consciously into um, another part of the cavern where they find, you know, they're being greeted by Magneto and his Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, which in this case is Eunice the Untouchable, the Blob, Mastermind, and Lorelei. And I had to look up Lorelei because I vaguely remember where she was from. X-Men 62... Was was her debut, and that's a Roy Thomas Neil Adams issue. I looked that up too. Our five heroes are all caught now in a uh, an energy field that Magneto has put them in, so that they can't do anything. And the they're all like a, it's like a platform with two poles at the end, and the energy is sort of blasting between the two poles and holding them in stasis. And across from them, very close by, is a giant glass tube. Magneto is explaining how when this sleeper behind me at last awakens, we mutants will rule your precious world. And you can sort of see there's a figure in the tube. I thought the way this was set up, and I was thinking sleepers from Captain America, so I thought this was setting up like the reveal of, of, of somebody we might be familiar with or something, or some other part of Marvel mythology. So I was really yeah. curious to see what was in that tube. Reserve my, I will reserve my reaction to what's in the tube when we get there. Okay. Dr. Strange says, the last thing, last thing I heard, you were captured by the Avengers. How do you get here, Magneto? You owe us this explanation, which is a weird thing to say, but he does say it. And Magneto sort of explains that at the last the last time he um, was seen back in Avengers number 111, the Avengers beat Magneto. Thor says, let's put him in this bubble of raw energy and send him to the very center of the Earth, where, you know, it's magnetically neutral, supposedly. Again, with the bubble of raw energy. Yeah, I was thinking that, too. It's like, I don't know. It must have been a thing back then. It's a little odd. And this is a great gimmick, though. So he's stuck there in the center of the earth in a, where he can't really use his magnetism powers because everything is nullified by, you know, Earth's gravity field. But the passing of Comet Kohotek <laughs> shifts the gravity of Earth just enough for him to break out of the bubble. And then he starts burrowing his way up in, through the earth and finds his way into a cavern where there's all sorts of uh, abandoned machinery and books and he's got all this great information he's getting out of these books that were never surely never of this earth but somehow he reads them now i read a scene like this 
and it made me go, does anyone ever tie this in to the Eternals, who don't exist yet in, in Marvel, you know, and haven't been published uh, yet, um, or, or anything else, you know, Inhumans, whatever. It just seems so bizarre to stumble across ancient technology uh, and in the Marvel Universe and then not, you know, we're, we're, we're using it as a plot device to just accept that this thing that Magneto needs at this exact moment is just this futuristic lab from the past is just there waiting for him. It's just, it's a, it's a fascinating tidbit. It is. I don't remember it ever coming up again, but who knows? It might've. So he gets all this, gets all these concepts together and ideas and whatever, and blasts his way out of the cavern so he can go find the rest of the brotherhood of evil mutants and bring them back with him be his minions essentially i mean i'm not sure i'm never sure why he needs them frankly well mastermind presumably created the illusions that helped keep the defenders at bay for not very long (laughs) yeah certainly no i mean i I know they do stuff but it's like magneto is supposed to be so powerful magneto's finishing his story and he says in that glassine chamber utilizing the long forgotten knowledge of the ancients and i the, the word glassine comes up again later, but like glassine is not a kind of glass. It's sort of what they used to call mylar. It's a little odd. Well, that's 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 ironic for a, a comic book <laughs> character to be in a mylar chamber. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> My mylar snuggie. <laughs> yeah, it's a little odd to say the least. But I I assume you know when writing this, just thought. Glassine, it sounds fancy. Yeah. Um, and Magneto finally comes to the point, which is in the tube, he is growing a mutant, whereas he says, the ultimate mutant. Well, he apparently created Lorelei in that, in that 1960s story as well. He claims credit for having uh, created her somehow. I'd have to look it up, but I do recall vaguely that that's what happened. He had a hand in giving her powers or whatever. Right. So Magneto says, now I have work to do. I'm going to turn my back on you all, heroes. And Professor X directs the other four heroes and says, if we all think real hard, we'll be able to bust our way out of this. (laughs) And sure enough, they all think real hard, and they bust their way out of the stasis field that they are in. Teamwork makes the dream work. Right? And um, it's a big splash page of everything. And it's... Pretty cool splash page for considering not much is happening, but you know everyone is flexing their muscles and whatnot. It's cool. Immediately after that, you know they break out. Magneto says, "What? They escaped? Stop them, other mutants, because we've got too much on the line here." So the defenders start fighting the Brotherhood of Evil mutants, and it's a really fun matchup between the Hulk and the Blob, because the Blob's thing is that you know once he's rooted in the place he's standing, he can't be moved. So it's really an immovable object and an unstoppable force. He's stronger than he looks. Hull keeps calling him Flabby Man. (laughs) Valkyrie is trying to use her sword against Eunice the Untouchable, but of course that's not very helpful. Mastermind is creating illusions to fight Doctor Strange, and he knows they're illusions, but he dares not ignore them, which I was like, okay, dude. (laughs) And then 
Professor X and Nighthawk are both stopped in their tracks by the Song of Lorelei, who's sort of able to do various things with her voice, everything but talk, apparently. But then they do manage to fight, to, to beat their foes here. Hulk figures out, oh, all I have to do is get you off, get the blob off the ground, and then I can beat him. Doctor Strange makes his own illusion of himself, so uh, Mastermind doesn't know where to focus his powers. Professor X manages to reach over and flip the switch to activate um, Nighthawk's jetpack, and he goes flying at Lorelei and knocks her out. And then Valkyrie realizes, like, oh, when Eunice is trying to hit me, he has to let down his force field for a split second, and that's when I'm going to strike. Right. It all works out. It all works out, but it's too late because they're about to release the ultimate mutant, the creature who will soon make me the master of the world, says Magneto. And you see the shadowy figure of whatever it is coming out of that tube at the very end of the issue. But I have to ask, as a as a cliffhanger, yeah, I was frustrated after seeing this something in this tube. Usually you would get a reveal at this point. You would actually see what's in the tube and go, oh my God, I can't yeah. wait until next month. And this is, I can't wait till next month to find out what it was because... You know, and things like this always frustrate me as a reader because I go, did they not figure it out yet? Did they, you know, what, what what's really going, what's really going on here? Because it really seems like you'd go, you know, behold the man, behold the mutant. And, you know, what, what, what is this thing? And it's, it just, it, it's a, it's a little bit of a trick that I, on the reader that I don't like. I hate when, I hate in general when characters know things I don't. If they can see the character, why can't I see the character? I hear ya. I think there might be just a little bit of a pacing error. You know, so much of the pacing of these stories is on the artist and you get to the end of the issue and kind of run out of space and it's like, Oh, I guess we're not going to have the big reveal here. That's my guess. Oh, you know what? In the letters page for this issue, it mentions a human torch, Iceman team up in Marvel team up coming up. Oh, so this actually precedes that or. Yeah, must. Yeah. It might be the same month or something. Right. Then we move straight on to Defenders number 16, which was October cover date, monthly, like I said, and on sale July 16th, 1974. And they show Alpha the Ultimate Mutant right on the cover. He's sort of holding the um, balanced scales of justice, and the evil mutants are on one side and the defenders are on the other side. And did you notice what's weird about this cover, Car? Tell me what is weird about this cover. Who's holding the scales? Um, Alpha? Yes. Who's behind Magneto on the side of the scales? The early version of Alpha. Yeah. He's on here twice. Joe <laughs> <laughs> Kane was just like, uh, you know, had no idea what the story was. He probably was just flipping through because there's an image to this similar in the in the book with the scale. So maybe he was just pulling that out as a I, so I, I would presume either he came up with a cover. And so they inserted that shot. So the cover wasn't a complete one. Not that you need, you know, the balancing, you know, you know, scales or that splash page was in as he flipped through the book. He combined different elements, not realizing that one character had two different different forms. Yeah, exactly. Kind of spoiled the issue for everybody now. <laughs> <laughs> it's very spoiled it and made it look a little more interesting than it actually was, maybe. But that's okay, whatever. 
I remember, um, and it would have been before this, you know, uh, when Len Wein created the character of Libra as a villain in Justice League of America, the Uh. image of the scales, because Libra was the, you know, the zodiac sign for the scales. And it was, I think, the Justice League versus the Injustice League. So Uh it had that kind of, I don't know who was holding the scale, but it had that same image of the the two scales of justice with justice on one side and injustice on the other. Um, so, you know, who knows if that came from Len as well, you know, or just coincidence. I don't know. This issue is written by Len Wein, art by Savisema, inks by Mike Esposito. And I'm pretty sure this is another splash page with Gaspar Saladino lettering because it looks better than the other pages. And it has some of those sort of rough outline balloons Last issue, they didn't do this because the whole issue was ink, was a letter, rather, by John Costanza, who's very capable of doing great splash page lettering. But for some reason, this one's back to Gaspar, I think. I said I get that vibe from it, definitely. Yeah, yeah. And right on the splash page, we see what we were not allowed to see at the end of the last issue, which is Alpha, the ultimate mutant, who is, I don't know, 12 feet tall, maybe? Compared to the Hulk, he's pretty big. And he's sort of got a Cro-Magnon-looking skull shape and face, you know, really rough kind of features. Yeah, I wasn't really impressed with this Ultimate Mutant. That's that, that's what I was trying to say. So I don't think I would have been impressed if I saw him at the end of the last issue. So maybe that was the, the concern as well. But I had sort of a Tor Johnson, you know, remember from Plan 9? Oh, I sure. He, he looks yes. like a wrestler or the wrestler from the... Um, I think I mentioned this character before because I think it's a it's a it's a prototype that Sal Buscema relies on characters that look like the wrestler from the Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, Magneto is ranting and raving about how it's all going to make me master of the world, and Doctor Strange says, "Not as long as one defender draws a breath." Doctor Strange blasts Alpha with a, a ray of some kind, and. You know, Magneto is upset by this because he doesn't want his new creation damaged. His new creation's already wearing sort of a loincloth thing, although it's green, by the way. Um, and Dr. Shane said, he's supposed to be a godlike creature. How can I make him feel pain with just this little blast? Well, remember how you were talking about Len Wein giving um, Dr. Strange kind of a Shakespearean dialogue? That's how I read this. Hurt him? Can a newborn godling feel pain, Magneto? Yeah, sure. It's almost like from the Merchant of Venice. <laughs> then we find out the weird secret about Alpha, which is that he seems unintelligent. He cannot speak. He's making sort of grunting noises, and he looks like Lenny from Of Mice and Men or something. <laughs> and Anyway, so Dr. Strange tries to blast him again, and this time his rays do not reach Alpha because Alpha has put up some kind of a force barrier. Hulk tries to attack him too, and it just sort of bounces off the force field. So, you know, Alpha is already defending himself. The Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are saying things about how how impressive Alpha is, and, you know, why don't we destroy the Defenders permanently right now? And Magneto says, eh, look at the satisfaction in that. Will he never learn? No, apparently not. Professor X must live to see how he you know, has failed or whatever. Magneto 
blasts the wall of the cave and it starts to crumble. And while this is happening, Magneto orders Alpha to teleport them all out of the cavern, which he does. And even right here, you'll notice a little change in the way he looks. It's very subtle, but it's definitely a little less primitive looking. Like his face is already starting to change. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, the defenders are digging their way out of the cave. It's collapsing around them. The Hulk holds up the tunnel so that the rest of the defenders can get out, and then the whole mountain falls on him, and everyone's upset. They think the Hulk's dead, and of course he just bashes his way out of the rubble and says, stupid rocks tried to smash Hulk. Hulk smashed back. Why is everyone looking so sad? Oh, we thought you were dead, Hulk. No, no, no. That could never happen. Doctor Strange asks Professor X to figure out where Magneto has gone. And, oh, he's, he's he and his whole group have gone to New York City. The scene shifts to Magneto and the Brother of Evil Mutants and Alpha arriving at the UN. They break into the uh, General Assembly. It's a return and Magneto, to Magneto, by the way. Is that right? When was the last time? It, well, it says right here, way back in Avengers 49. Oh, that's right. The, the, the security guard recognizes him. It's a great little scene, actually. I'm glad they acknowledge that, because I'm like, Magneto at the UN, I'm sure that's happened before. It seems, you know, it's it's his go-to, <laughs> like, I'm going to take over the world, I'm gonna, but I'm going to do it diplomatically, you know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I forgot about that. By the way, I meant to mention on the previous page, when Professor X is asked to figure out where Magneto went, doesn't he usually need Cerebro to find that kind of thing of like where mutants are? Or is it just because he already knows Magneto so well that it's not really necessary? Oh, I'm going to go with that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, Cerebro might just be for finding new mutants, undiscovered mutants, you know? That That's arguable, too. I mean, and is Cerebro... I guess Cerebro's a thing at this point, right? I mean... I think? That was in the... Because in the, you always have to remember, X-Men did, what, like... 60 issues and then went reprint. So, yeah. So, in the General Assembly, Magneto has gone to the podium and says, You know, we demand to be in charge of everything and rule the world right now. And we want a statement that says Magneto is the boss and everyone else takes orders from him. And some of the diplomats refuse and they're, you know, saying, You're a madman and all this. So, Magneto turns to Alpha and says, it's time for you to help your fellow mutants. And Alpha is kind of going, she says, help you. Alpha Alpha will help you. Um, and apparently the way to help them is to make the entire United Nations building fly up into the air <laughs> with all the people around and stuff. I don't know how that's helping, but it is helping, apparently. And all the diplomats are having a, a meltdown about this. Meanwhile, the defenders are approaching their destination and are rendered invisible or <laughs> transparent or something. I mean, they're supposed to be invisible, but they just look like the colorist forgot to color them. It's pretty funny. right? The, so they look up. The United Nations building is just up in the middle of the air, and they all fly up to it. Magneto is apparently still making a speech because he's saying, why do you interrupt me, Mastermind? And Mastermind says, "Uh, Professor X and his friends are here. They want to talk to you. Magneto tells Alpha, destroy them! And Alpha's like, destroy them? Why? 
and Alpha is looking more polished and modern by the moment, but he does not like this idea of destroy them. But anyway, he makes creatures out of rock that kind of come out of the base of the uh, United Nations Plaza to spring up and attack the defenders, but they beat them pretty easily. It's really not even a page of fighting. They just, you know, destroy those rock creatures who look kind of like the stone men of Saturn, by the way, um, in no time. Yeah, I thought that too. And I mean, I also kind of felt that, I mean, as we see uh, Alpha evolving, that he was maybe not giving it his all. Like he put up some sort of obstruction for them, but it really wasn't. He, I don't think he deep down wanted to hurt the defenders. At least that's yeah, his, his, heart, his heart wasn't in it. Yeah. Sure. The defenders breach the inner chamber of the General Assembly and Magneto's starting to get annoyed at Alpha and says, I told you to destroy them. And now I want you to obliterate them. And Alpha's saying, why should I take another's life? I would not, I, I don't want to do that. And Magneto is really, you know, trying to impose his will on Alpha, but it's not going very well. I mean, he does say, you know, Alpha says, okay, fine, I'll stop them. The Hulk runs at him. Alpha waves and turns the Hulk to stone. Nighthawk comes flying at him, and he puts Nighthawk into sort of a spin that makes him dizzy and not, and lose consciousness. And every time we see him, Alpha's getting a little more futuristic-looking because now his cranium's getting bigger and bigger, as Professor X is noticing. Valkyrie runs at him, and he, ugh, turns her legs to putty, which is really horrifying. It's the only one of these that's actually interesting. Yeah. And Alpha says, please surrender. I don't want to harm you, but you guys need to stop fighting me. And Dr. Strange is about to attack, but then Professor X says, you're fighting on the wrong side. We represent justice. Magneto is the menace here. And Alpha says, hmm, that's interesting. Magneto says, he's lying. Don't listen to him, which I thought was funny because it's like, dude, your group's called the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Evil. Evil. I, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, man. <laughs> no, it's, it's funny, though. It's like, yes, if, 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 if you looked at his business card, you would have noticed. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, it's right there. And this is the point where Alpha says, I, had, I need to figure things out. There's duplicity here, as he says. And there's a big splash page of Alpha with those scales of justice. That's right. And the different characters are on either side of the scales of justice. That's a heavy side of that scale. Actually, when you think about it, that scale should be <laughs> the blob <laughs> and that should really be weighing down that side of the scale more on the cover. Yeah, true story. <laughs> Somehow, anyway, Alpha weighs them on the scales and comes back and says, Magneto, you've been lying to me. And at this point, Alpha's cranium is just gigantic. He looks like you know, he he's a an extra from two thousand and one, a space odyssey or something. Yeah, he's here to serve man. <laughs> That's why they join episode? Yeah, oh yeah. Alpha decides he's going to punish Magneto on the evil mutants by, and he zaps them, and then he says to Alpha says to the defenders, "I'm sorry for my actions this day, and I hope they haven't inconvenienced you." I thought that was funny. But anyway, he brings the United <laughs> Nations building back to Earth. And then 
says, well, I'm out of here. I'm going to go to the stars. And he just like leaves Earth behind. And then second to last panel, Hawk is going, I don't know what happened as usual, but I only mentioned this panel specifically because very clearly was completely re-inked by John Romita. Of the Hulk's face, I mean, excuse me. I was I was going to ask you that too, yeah, because you're usually spot on about those things. No, it's definitely. And then the very last panel, Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants are all babies. Ironic. The craziest twist ending ever. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to remember how they got out of that. I looked it up. Oh, good. Because I remember I wasn't reading Marvel at this time, so I didn't read this issue new. Right. But by the time X-Men 104 came around, I was, because I started X-Men with 95. So uh, so you got the new X-Men. They have their first encounter with Magneto. Dave Cockrum even does like a homage cover to X-Men 1, you know, with um, – uh, yeah, but he's got like you know Nightcrawler replacing the Beast and stuff like that. It's a very cool cover, and right. Magneto's in it. And I remember as a kid being driven crazy because I did not believe there was such a story. But it actually explains how Eric the Red, Magneto's brother, one of his brothers, I believe, is he a brother? But Eric the Red had they were imprisoned. Magneto Baby, I don't know what happened to all the other babies, but Magneto Baby was in this prison being raised by Eric the Red until such <laughs> a time when Eric the Red could sort of restore Magneto to his to his to adulthood, something like that. It was very but but I really could not believe I sort of could believe it because it happened in Defenders and that was my favorite crazy series of the time. But yeah, it was really like so Magneto turned into a baby two years ago and they just haven't done anything with that. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness but it's kind of i mean and this relates to the issue we're about to talk i'll talk about it more later but there is like the legs turning to putty and this kind of twist ending there is yeah. something that is like the old dc and ec horror stories that len is also bringing into this a bit you know because this really did feel to me like a twist ending like if you're going to act like children i'm going to zap you and then the reveal is oh i've made you you know, children again, which is sort of like a, you know, they're, again, Len was a big fan of Twilight Zone. And, you know, there was a great, you know, I mean, there probably were a lot of stories like this. And, and I remember reading them in different comic books. But the idea of, you know, the person who's searching for the fountain of youth getting reverted mm -hmm. to, to being a baby is always, because that's the most powerless thing. So it's someone in search of power and glory getting reduced to the most helpless creature imaginable is, a classic twist ending. And, and I, I, I was like, Oh, I, like I forgot that happened until I read the story. I'm like, Oh yeah, there it is. There's Magneto baby. Anything else to add? I do. Cause I learned, I think what we learned, if we're going <laughs> to Hulk as an expert, one of the things we learned it can settle arguments all around the globe. It's spelled out phonetically. Hulk says Magneto. Oh, that's great. So uh, it, it spelled out a couple times. I forgot to mention it earlier, but, you know, some people like to say Magneto because I think that's what the thing in a car. What's the thing in a car called? I'm not I don't know a lot about cars. Do you? Ma uh, Magneto, as far as I know. I mean, it is Magneto. OK, so that is what that. So it's supposed to be sound like that. And I think that's what they were using. Stan and Jack were using as reference more or yeah. less. And it's not, but, it's not Magneto. I've also heard an argument for it being 
uh, Magnet O like, you know, you were a folk singer from the early 60s. Hey, Magnet O. <laughs> But that would be like a hyphen. That would be like magnet. Yes. <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> All right. So let's wrap it up. Until next time. Defenders dissemble. Keep on defending, everybody. And hey, almost forgot to say, please subscribe so you don't miss any upcoming episodes of Defenders Dialogue. And if you like what you're hearing or you're just excited about what's coming soon, uh, leave us a review. We appreciate it, and we will see you next time. Superheroes, the Marvel superheroes have arrived.